At every ARBA convention, we're greeted by a banner that reads, For five days, you don't have to explain to anyone why you raise rabbits. Our hobby sometimes raises eyebrows. You show what? But once you step inside, you'll discover a world full of passionate, interesting people all working toward the ultimate goal, best in show. What can I do for you? Well, I'm looking for a white rabbit. You take the red pill. You stay in Wonderland. And I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. If I were looking for a white rabbit, I'd ask the Mad Hatter. Okay, rabbit, you force me to use force. I imagine that right now you're feeling a bit like Alice, tumbling down the rabbit hole. Hello and welcome to the 16th episode of Best in Show, the only podcast dedicated to the show rabbit and show KV industry. I am Bryony Smith and I am joined each and every week by my brilliant and talented co-host Alan Messick. Alan, what's going on in your corner of the rabbit world? Well, th- thank you for the intro. I I just love doing this podcast with you. It's so fun every week. It's like it's it's totally the highlight of my week. Um so I, what's going on in my world? Well, <laughs> podcast. It's just it's it's what I'm doing right now and like I, I last night I couldn't sleep because I started, you know, penning out uh today's interview and gosh, I, my the thoughts just kept kept rolling, but other than that, uh, it's hot as heck here. It was like 104 today. It's going to be 106 this weekend. It's just, it's, it's, it's miserable, but hopefully it won't last too long. We actually had our first fire here in the, in the Sierras today. We could see her from the house. It was a little scary, but um, they got it out. Planes were circling all day, dropping retardant. And uh, that is the, <laughs> that is what's going on here. Um, what's going on in Kansas? Yikes. We're getting a little bit bit of a heat wave too. It's gotten up to about 100. Um, It's actually not as bad as it was last week in the mid 90s when it was super humid. Um, But Monday, everyone was on Facebook complaining about, you know, my neighborhood group, it was 91 degrees. Oh, the severe (laughs) heat. Make sure you put out water for stray possums and (laughs) raccoons. Um, And I'm like, guys, we lived through the summer of 2011. I'm not complaining yet. Um, I've still got some litters due. So it's a little little earlier than I would like. But we're going to break by this weekend. So now well, that the, you've had our the, weather report. <laughs> well, but we're at, weather's important this time of year. So that's yeah. a, we talked about, you know, and you, have, you brought up a good point a couple of podcasts ago about what to do for litters born when it's really when it's really wet. What are some of the things that you do in your barn um, when it's hot for, for brand new litters? Um, well, first I watch the due dates. I have noticed that my does do tend to go a little overdue when it's hot. Um, the litters that I've had this week, the does are going about 32 days. Um, I did induce one on day 33. I do not let them go past that. Um, but I think one of the most important things to do is make sure that you get to that nest as quickly as possible and take out as much of that fur and hay and just hot stuff as you can. A lot of times, um, and, and you may be seen, I posted a couple of pictures of babies because they're doing little goofy things. But uh, I use shredded aspen in the bottom of my boxes because the aspen doesn't have those irritating fragrance oils like pine. And a lot of times I will take out almost all but that aspen or just dump the nest entirely and replace it with fresh aspen. Um, To me, it kind of feels more like, you know, when you're hot, I remember at summer camp as a kid, we didn't have air conditioning, you would lay on top of your sheets, rather than laying under the blankets. And, you know, they're warm in there. And that way they can spread out. There's a nice flat area for them to spread out, get away from each other 
get a little air movement in between them and cool off a bit. That's such a good analogy. And it's, it's true. Like if you watch a litter, because it's very hot here. And if I look at a litter uh, during a day like this, and I've done all those things you've done too, like removed most of the hair, uh, taken out a lot of the shavings, you'll see the litter, say it's a, a Californian litter. They're spread out like, like kids on a, on a, on a camp bed because they don't want to be next to each other, but it kind of goes against like what we're ingrained to believe that, you know, they want to be snuggled up. They want to be under the, under all the fur and the fluff that the mom has spent so much time, you know, dedicatingly making uh, a beautiful nest, which they still do regardless of what time of year it is. They seem to never quite understand how much fur to pull, you know, to be in, in collaboration with the temperature, but um, yeah, pulling out that extra hair. And what we have out here, um, we use metal nest boxes and in the summer, we switch out the bottoms of our boxes to have a perforated kind of like a grate at the bottom. So it actually adds some airflow to the bottom of the, the cage, which if they're on wire, which most rabbits are, uh, then it adds a little bit of circulation too. So uh, those kind of things have really saved saved us. And yeah, walking through the barn every day, because sometimes a doe will go back in there and pull more hair. You know, when she sees like her, her depleted litter of the, the fabulous nest that she's made for them, she'll pull more air. And keeping it off of them and just like you said, just giving them some space to spread out is so important. Yeah. And then, you know, at nighttime when it cools off, they will snuggle back up again and keep each other warm. Um, but that allows them to kind of regulate their own temperature a bit better and make themselves more comfortable and survive. Absolutely. Because I always tell people like the number one killer of rabbits is heat. It's it's not any of these diseases we talk about. It's uh, it's it's heat. They just don't do well in it. And uh, taking that winter coat off, whether it's, you know, a rabbit that's molting or whether it's a litter full of uh, a beautiful nest, it's getting rid of that fur, which is such a great insulation. I mean, it's no more fur coats are made of rabbit fur for so many years. It keeps the warm in, but in a really hot day like this or weeks or summer, it doesn't make sense. So save your litters by getting rid of all that extra fluff and, and, and shavings and maybe even have adding like a perforated bottom. Yeah, that's a great idea too. So I think we've had some uh, great comments roll in. Do you want to have some that you want to share with our, our audience this week? Yeah, sure. And and I do want to preface this by saying, like, we're not only just open to good comments. Um, we're also open to constructive feedback as well. Um, we want to hear what you like about the podcast, what you think we can improve on, because we do want to make this, you know, accessible and interesting for everybody. Um, so one comment was on one of Jason Karwaski's posts where Peter Marin said um, that his father and I shoe horses. They started listening to the podcast and that he enjoys them as much as I do, which I, I'm guessing his dad's not a rabbit person and that it's refreshing from sports talk and talk radio. And he learns from everyone, which I think is wonderful because we learn from each of our guests too. Oh, we totally do. I mean, we, I, I, I'm at the point of taking notes by a lot of our guests. It's just crazy. Well, we're, well, we're saturating. So there's always something to learn. And then I got another comment from Chelsea Lanzettle. Chelsea lives in Kansas, um, formerly Chelsea Tucker. She was a youth that grew up here, actually a former ARBA queen. And her son is now showing rabbits. He's very much into it. And she said, I love the podcast episode this week. Sturm, who's her husband, and I listened to it last night as we put together a puzzle. And he found it really interesting for a person who's never attended a convention before. He's very excited but nervous for Louisville, and this episode gave him a better idea of what to expect at convention. So cool. Yeah, you and Gordon talked about some of those basic things. Like, if you're going to your first convention, 
you know, this is what you got to expect. This is what the check-in process is. This is what checkout day is. I, I, I listened to the podcast last night, actually. Um, and, you know, maybe our guests don't know, but um, a lot of times we record pieces of the podcast together. So I don't get to listen to, uh, if you do an interview, you know, maybe until it's it's, it's debuted. And uh, as a lot of our listeners have said, like they're they're doing barn chores where they're listening to the podcast, which I did last night. I was cleaning nest boxes and getting my nursery ready and putting a bunch of um, Britannia potatoes in with their boxes and I had the podcast going and um, I loved how you and Gordon touched on, you know, what it's like for a first time exhibitor. And I had to chuckle at some of the, the, the jokes about the pandemonium as, uh, as you guys, as we all exit the convention <laughs> on that mass exodus. And in the matter of what hours, the same people that took days to get there are gone. It was just funny because it's so true. Yeah. It so never, couple- never ceases to amaze me. No, it's, I, you know, I did a, um, <laughs> I, I had an old iPhone and I stuck it up above the, uh, the 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 showroom at the Reno convention and I put it on like elapsed time so for the entire convention I it was recording and I didn't look at it I didn't touch it until the very end it was so fun to watch the the coming in the setting up and then the depletion and the depletion when you do elapsed time is like literally like half a second and everyone's out of there it was, just, it was hilarious <laughs> so um, I've got a couple of comments too that came came my way I'm gonna read two of those uh, the first one is from Ethan Harville from Tennessee. He said, I've been listening to all of the podcasts. I love them. Feels like you are at a show with friends, just enjoying good fellowship and exchanging stories. And, you know, Brian, you, know, you and I we talked about that early on when we decided to do this podcast. That was one of our one of our aims was to feel like we're all at a rabbit show, even if we're not, for whatever reason it is. Um, and the second one I got uh, comes from Paulina in Washington. She's a Texel KV breeder. By the way, if you're not friends with Paulina on uh, on Facebook or Instagram, you really should be. Her Instagram is fabulous. She is really into her Texel KVs, and she happens to love long hair, curly animals. But guess what? She's got some Angora goats too. Um, so she texted me last week, and she goes, "It would be great to have more KV talks. I've been hooked on all of the podcasts, KV related or not." So what's kind of fun is that, you know, there's something to learn from everyone or for, for everyone that's, that's listening, whether you're KV or Rabbit. Um, and Paulina, you are in luck because tonight we are dedicating this podcast to KVs. So uh, without further ado, Bryony, do you uh, want to roll into our educational portion for the evening? Yeah, um, we chose and we, we decided we talked before the, the episode and we thought, I, I don't know if our listeners really know how we choose some of our history pieces, but we try to pick a year that relates in some way to our guest. So 1979 was the year that Steve got his judge's license. I happened to have a domestic rabbits from 1979. I picked up a just a handful of old DRs at a show several years ago. I didn't really even look at them. I pulled them out for this and every single one of them has got some kind of like historical gold. It is so cool. So I pulled this one out. This is the September, October 1979 issue opening the cover. Um, I'll just go quickly through the executive board. President was G.A. Burke, Vice President Gordon Fry, Secretary Ed Pfeiffer Jr., and Treasurer was Connell Addison, who served in that role for quite some time. In the President's report, um, it talked about a new director that had been appointed for District 5 to replace Oren Reynolds. Oren had decided that it was in the best interest of the district as due to his duties with domestic rabbits. He did not have the time to do justice to the district. And I think the Domestic Rabbits was a fairly new publication at the time. Um, there may have been a bulletin before this, but this magazine format was, I think, kind of new. And that new director is a name with which most of us are very familiar, Tex Thomas. So it gave us a little bio of Tex, who at the time was 34 years old and had started out in the ARBA Youth Division when he was 14. 
There was also some information about the upcoming convention in Tucson, Arizona. There were two resolutions to be considered at convention. One of those was to reword the licensing of judges application or licensing of judges process. And it said an applicant for an all breed rabbit judges license shall within two years of the date shown on his or her application assist in the judging of at least eight all breed shows under licensed judges. In addition to the shows worked in connection with qualifying for registrar's license and shall secure the endorsement of at least five judges. He or she has assisted in such shows during the course of the eight shows applicant must have worked with at least 10 breeds. So I don't know what it was before. It doesn't say, but that's now six judges instead of five. And more breeds. You have to... to uh, and more breeds. Right. But there are more breeds now. <laughs> Good, um, Good point. Resolution. Yep. Um, resolution number two was to amend Article 6, Section 1 of the Constitution to add, any elected officer can only serve three consecutive terms in the same office. So I don't know if this was the first term limit, but this is one that it, it was set at three consecutive terms um, all the way back in 1979. In the Secretary's report, something I found a bit interesting, it said, each year at the National Convention, the Vice President of the ARBA, who's the person in charge of all of our chartered clubs and myself, have a meeting with all of the presidents and secretaries of the various ARBA chartered clubs. At this meeting, we air all of the complaints and suggestions the clubs have. I'm sure those got colorful. Um, some new judges. I was going to say, um, reason to not be ARBA vice president back then? <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Um, that sounds like a lot of work. <laughs> indeed. New judges and registrars, um, the ones that are still active, Alice Moses, who's now Alice Moses Panko of Texas, was a newly licensed registrar. And Unita Boatman of Oregon was a newly licensed all-breed rabbit judge. Um, moving on, there were some interesting letters to the editor. One was about um, deregulation of airlines and the impact that that had had on shipping rabbits. There was also an ad for the Gordon Fry Equipment Company. He was vice president at the time. This was in Kansas. This company was actually purchased by Ellsworth Tibbetts, who was the first Best in Show winner at an ARBA convention and was then purchased by the Conradi family in Emporia, Kansas, who still own it. And it's still called Fry Equipment, and nobody really knows why anymore in Kansas. Um, there's an interesting article um, by someone named Rod Myers with um, a novel approach to rat and mouse control. The title is Rat and Mouse Control is Poison the Only Solution. And just skimming through, I see in all caps, we got a ferret. <laughs> oh, my God. Well, that wouldn't Having... work in California. We, we, You know, ferrets are outlawed in the state. Really? Yeah. That, they and hedgehogs, we cannot have those in California. So Interesting. I guess it's back to rat poison here. I guess. He didn't say where he's from, um, but he says, Having never, ever seen a ferret before, we were sure that he would get loose and kill everything in sight. We bought a white male. We kept him in his cage, never letting him loose at all. When he would clean his cage, we would throw his droppings in the area of greatest rat traffic, etc. Within a three to four month period, every single rat or mouse was gone from the rabbitry, and we haven't seen a single one since. So I guess um, he says, it seems that rats and mice are extremely afraid of a ferret. So I guess ferret poop can work as rat and mouse control. Maybe is ferret poop illegal in California? I, I don't know. I guess I better get on Etsy and see if I can buy some tonight. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> no, I've got, a, I've got a healthy rattlesnake population. Actually, rat and mouse problems are not an issue here. Oof. 
we don't have a good history with that in our barn. Um, for those who don't know, my mom was actually bitten in a um, in our barn three years ago by a rattlesnake, um, completely unprovoked. And what happens is if there's venom in the bite, you go to the hospital and you stay in intensive care for a few days because they're measuring and monitoring you every hour on the air. It was not fun. Not pretty. Um, there was another letter or an article about grand champions. And the author of this article was kind of complaining about people who um, show rabbits over and over again. It says, I've noticed that some rabbit breeders keep showing a rabbit over and over again. And in a recent article in one of the magazines we subscribed to, there was one breeder who made a special point of letting everyone know that his animal had about 10 legs, which doesn't seem like a lot now, but you have to remember that most shows were single shows back then. So this was, you know, 10 separate weekends. We can do that now sometimes in a couple weekends. The author went on to suggest that perhaps grand champions should not be allowed to show anymore, which, you know, it's an idea that's been batted around for a long time. But ultimately, um, you know, it, let the best rabbit win. I mean, I, I equate that with the, the the gripes. And I don't know that it's ever been brought to like an official level, but that if a judge is judging a show that he or she should not be showing at the same show, obviously not in the same breed that the, that the judge is judging, but it, it kind of falls into that. And it, I, I, in my opinion, neither one have any ground. You know, and that brings up an interesting point that we talked about at our show last week and to completely diverge from this DR. Um, <laughs> Sorry. No, no, no. The way that, that we run that show, it's actually two single shows that share a building. So there is one set of judges for one show, one set of judges for another. And I do not know why more clubs don't do this because as both an exhibitor and a judge, I love this. Normally, I judge one show. I judge a KSRBA scholarship show. And then if I show rabbits, which I didn't this year, I will show them in the other show that removes any potential complaint of conflict of interest for me as a judge and an exhibitor. But the other thing I like about that is how many times have you gone to a double show, say um, you judge my Dutch in the A show and you didn't really like my blue buck, you picked a black doe, but then you're the best in show judge for the B show and the other judge picked that blue book. So now I'm putting up this rabbit that you didn't really like on the table for best in show. I mean, both as an exhibitor, as a judge, that's awkward. Um, you know, as, as an exhibitor, I don't like putting a rabbit up that that judge did not pick. And as a judge, you know, sometimes we've seen rabbits at the show and we think, man, that was really an incredible New Zealand that I judged. Um, that one's going to be tough to beat for best in show. And then you get up there and that rabbit's not there. <laughs> There's one that no. you didn't care for. And it's awkward. I get it. We've all been there. But here's an example from a show I recently judged. Um, I got it was a very same situation. I judged, you know, a number of breeds during the day. I'm not going to mention the show because, you know, you're not supposed to talk about your placements or others' placements throughout, uh, you know, a show that already happened or whatever. But, um, you know, when I got to do best in show, the one of the breeds that I had judged during the day was not the same one that I picked. I ended up making a reserve in show. It was still one of the top rabbits I saw all day. And how many times we judge, you know, you can judge maybe 10 or 12 breeds in a day, but some of the best rabbits you may judge, maybe five in the same breed. So it's it doesn't totally rule you out from, from doing well uh, just because you've got a, a rabbit that maybe you can, you, you preface it a little bit or worded a little differently, you know, if it was like something that a judge totally dumped in the first show and then it's back up for best of best in show on the second show. Yeah, that's one thing. But sometimes, you, you know what, what I'm talking about, like you'll judge and like, like I said, five of your favorite rabbits in the entire day will be from maybe one breed, could even be from one class for God's sakes. So I ended up making that rabbit reserve and show. It was actually a rabbit. I made second in its class and, you know, it takes maybe a little bit of gall to do that, but 
at the end of the day, when I looked at all the rest of them, I was like, well, actually, that was the right one. So it happens. <laughs> yeah, it does. You know, and I've actually, I have also, I have won a reserve and show under and judge that did not pick that route, but best in show or best yep. debris. But then I think, man, if the right one was up there, I could have won best in show. Uh, yeah, of course, from the exhibitor <laughs> standpoint, there is that. And then I'll, I, we're going to continue on this because this is a good, this is a good topic. We should really do a whole podcast on it uh, because it's one of those touchy, touchy subjects. But um, from the judge standpoint, when, in my mind, when I'm doing this, I'm thinking, gosh, I wonder if they think I've just totally lost it. I don't even realize what I've picked like previously in the day, but yeah. no, I'm, I'm actually just I'm not like, I'm just, no, that confident that one is the second best one up here. And I made a reserve show. So, or it could have been best in show. I've seen that happen too, or I've done it myself. So it, it does take some guts. Um, but you know, you got to separate church and state. And if it's, if it's the best one or a second best one or third best one, wherever you're picking the best reserve and show or second reserve and show, you got to put all that stuff aside. Those are biases, right? That they are. Well, moving forward in this issue, um, there are several reports of national breed specialty shows. The national rec show is reported on and, um, since 1979, the only change in the varieties of the Rex is the addition of the amber, which I thought was interesting. Whites um, had the most entries with 67. Next were casters with 32 and brokens with 27. I think this is one of the few breeds that recognized brokens back at the time. There was a report about the National Checkered Giant Show. This was a record entry, um, at least so far as records had been kept um 406 checkered giants shown it said the old record was 403 from 1969 so it took them 10 years to beat that gosh that's um, a lot of checkers it is but in these show reports it's really interesting to see there are some breeders that are still very active in the hobby at this checkered giant show best opposite sex was won by a black senior buck owned by doug Hare of Terre Haute, indiana wow so cool david freeman of cincinnati ohio won best six eight with a type e black doe Amazing. On the National New Zealand show, best opposite sex with Gene Robotham with a um, intermediate black buck. He won best and best opposite black. Um, best black display was won by Caleb Thomas, who much, must have cleaned up some of the other classes. There's a report from the National Dutch show um, with the Williamson Dutch boys winning best opposite sex. There is a wonderful picture of young youth ambassador Tammy Loomis, now known as Tammy Benolkin. There's an article by Oren Reynolds um, talking about evaluation of rabbits, some strengths and weaknesses of body type using some line drawings that are still used in our standard to this day. And there is a report um, from the standards committee chair, which I thought was really interesting. Um, and, and I'm still kind of learning about how this was done, you know, before the time when I joined the Airbnb and the process was, you know, detailed in the standards perfection that I owned, but it says um, it's talking about making changes to the breed standards. And that was in process at this time. And it says to those of you who still have standards to submit, I offer some words of caution to the extent that we are only looking for clarification and a uniformity of, or order in presentation. The rewriting of a standard to change the established type and breed characteristics is not considered as a revision. This is a submission of a new breed and is unacceptable. I'm really curious as to where that line between clarification and change takes place. Because as we know, a lot of our breeds that we have have really evolved and changed a lot over the years. And the standards have been rewritten to reflect that. You know, 
I especially think of our high head mount breeds, mm. um, how those standards have evolved and changed year over year to reflect, um, you know, that we're looking for those really high head mounts, a kind of different top line, you know, in the page facing, there's another Lindorf that looks like a brick with a head <laughs> that was winning at the time. Um, it was a very like rectangular shaped animal, almost like a cavey. Um <laughs> But but I kind of wonder where that line was drawn. So so that's interesting. The chair at that time was Al Meyer. Um, and of course, there's a little ad for the California Rabbit Specialty Club. Apparently, the secretary of that club lived in El Dorado, Kansas in 1979. I have no idea who that might have been. Another but, nod to El Dorado. Another nod to El Dorado. <laughs> All right. So uh, you picked 1979. That was the the year that uh, Steve Lucier, our one of our special guests tonight, uh, we've got he and his wife, Margie, uh, Margie as our guests. Uh, he was licensed in 1979. So I picked 1972 to talk about some world events. And 1972 was the year that uh, Steve Lucier actually joined the ARBA. So we're going to take a little divergence from how I normally or how you and I normally do this, but it's going to be like a cost of things in 1972. So in 1972, the average cost of a new house was, ready, $27,550. Uh, certainly not that way in California today. Um, uh, also in 72, if you bought a split-level home with a hilltop living room, dining room, three bedrooms, cathedral ceilings, three baths, central air, and a double garage in Iowa City, it would be $32,400. The average that in- like the Brady Bunch house? Because that's what it sounds like. <laughs> well, I was going to say, it's split-level um, <laughs> Oof. Yeah, grow no. it up, man. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, the average income in 72 was 11800 Crazy to think about. Oh, man, this really hurts because gas is so expensive out here. But the average cost of gas in the United States in 1972 was 55 cents per gallon. I can't even imagine. Um, Wrangler jeans cost a total of 12 bucks. Uh, a Ford Pinto, I don't think that they are on the road anymore, but they were only $2,000. Um, If you were buying a Barbie doll from the designer collection, they started at $2.85. A Frisbee, which I don't think kids today play with, uh, they were $0.94. Hellman's mayonnaise was $1.39. And in 1972, fresh strawberries for one pound was only $0.31. So lots of change since then. Uh, Top songs in 1972. You're going to love it, Brian, because it's (laughs) a lot of ballads in 72. Number one, I'm sorry, the first time I ever saw your face, (laughs) I remember Roberta Flack. (laughs) Oh, man, don't. (laughs) Number two, Alone Again by Gilbert O'Sullivan. And third uh, was American Pie by Don McLean, which was actually recorded in 71 as an eight-minute version. So interesting uh, bit of songs. Are you an American Pie song kind of fan? Uh, yes, I love American Pie. Oh, okay, good. Absolutely okay. love American Pie. The entire version, and I think I can probably still sing all of it. <laughs> we'll have to see that. Maybe karaoke at a convention coming up. <clears throat> but I'm, yeah, I, I actually, I can do One Week by Bare Naked Ladies as well. But I'm surprised mm. because that was a year that Exile on Main Street by the Rolling Stones came out. So I'm surprised, oh. you know, like Tumbling Dice and all of that is not on there. But that's okay. <sighs> I'm sure they caught up in 73. <laughs> All right, we'd like to welcome our special guests for episode 16, dedicated to uh, KVs, and that is uh, Stephen Margie Lucier from Tennessee. How are you guys doing tonight? Very good, thank you. And am I pronouncing your last name right? Is it Lucier or Lucier? Lucier is fine. Lucier. Yep. Okay, well, it's, it's, it's Francais, but, you know, I don't know. That's uh, how we say it. <laughs> okay. 
Perfect. That's how I've said it for years. Well, yes. thanks. Thanks for joining us on the podcast. And this is the second time we're dedicating a, an entire podcast to KVs. And it was a really fitting week to chat with you guys because you just came off of a massive, uh, massive weekend there in Ohio. And we're going to talk about that in a little bit. But before we do that, why don't you uh, tell us a little bit about your guys, uh, yourselves, you know, how long you've been married and uh, where you're from and maybe where you've lived over all these years. Okay. We, we've been married forever. <laughs> now, actually, congratulations. We, we just had uh, our 49th anniversary a couple of days ago. So oh we've been married gosh. 49 years. Uh, we started uh, raising cabies right after we got married. Uh, and we've had them ever since. Uh, we started out showing rabbits first, did that for about five years, and found out that uh, we got a few guinea pigs and found out it was a lot easier to take care of the guinea pigs in the house than go out and chip the water bowls on the rabbits during the winter. So we wound up staying with the with the guinea pigs and got rid of the rabbits. Okay, I will give you that because I have lived where it's cold and all the ice. Yep, and the, exactly. okay? <laughs> but I will tell you, there is not an animal on the planet that has more intention to poop in its food dish than a KV. So I don't know that I agree that they're that they're easier to take care of. I think that that's they're, absolutely they're, true. They take so much work. <laughs> oh my gosh! And because you can't raise them on, or you probably could raise them on some sort of wire, but you know, typically you guys raise them over shavings, right? Yeah. Right, we mm-hmm. do. Yeah, and they're they they love to be dirty little pigs. Yes, they are. Yes, they are. <laughs> So in 49 years and and since the early 70s when, you, when you've when you had cabies and rabbits, um, do you have children? And if you did, did, did they get involved in, in showing rabbits and cabies? No, we never had children. And okay. uh, kind of our children are all the pets that we have. Yeah, exactly. So they, they were all your kids over all these years. Yeah. That's not, that's not an uncommon story to hear in our hobby, as, you, as I'm sure you've bumped into over the years, too. So um, currently you live in Tennessee, but uh, where was that you lived where you were chipping ice bowls for rabbits? <laughs> we lived in Connecticut for basically all our life. I had moved up there with my parents when I was in fourth grade. Margie lived there her whole life. And we, uh, we got married there, uh, lived in two different places for six years each, and wound up moving to Harlington, and we lived there for 32 years. And um, so, you know, we're all nutmeggers here, which is kind of cool. Yeah. I don't get to talk to very many people from Connecticut. I grew up there. It's been 20 years since I've, I've left yeah. Connecticut. I don't miss those winters, that's for sure. No. The, <laughs> but, day, the, the day I retired, we moved to Tennessee. Really? And what took you to Tennessee? Why Why Tennessee? Uh, several reasons. We like the area here. It's beautiful. We're right at the base of the Smoky Mountains. Uh, the cost of living here is much less than it was in Connecticut. Our taxes are much lower. Uh, it's out of the cold, but we still have four seasons. We do get snow here, but when we get it, we use a, use a broom to sweep it off the sidewalk <laughs> and it's melted within the day or so after it snows. So, uh, it's much more, uh, an even climate temperature here for us. So it's like when have... you get, when you get that snow, it's a little bit more nostalgic and then yeah, without exactly. all the inconveniences. <laughs> it's yeah. pretty, but it's gone shortly. <laughs> I, I get it. It kind of does that here in the, in the Sierras too. And it's like, Oh, it's so pretty. And now it's gone. I don't have yep, to shovel exactly. it. I don't have to get stuck or, or get stranded for days. Yeah, don't miss those days. Um, so you said you uh, you both uh, found you know got into cavies and rabbits uh, basically together as as you were early married. Yeah. And, and what year did did you join the ARBA, Steve? I, uh, we we actually both joined in 1972. Uh, I've had continuous membership ever since. Margie's lapsed for a short time, and hers is from 1996 is continuous uh, membership. 
Very cool. Congratulations uh, on all those years. And you are also a, a lifetime ARB member, correct? Yes, I just just got that uh, like two years ago. What goes into that, by the way? I, I'm nowhere close. Uh, if I remember it correctly, you have to be a member for 25 years. Uh, I think it's over 60, if I'm not mistaken. And uh, you have to you, be old. Yeah, you have to be <laughs> old. <laughs> oh man, well, I, I'm almost as close to 25 years of membership, but yeah, but you're thankfully, I'm not, away from yeah, 60. you got a, a few more years to go before you make <laughs> I, the, the senior age. <laughs> I'll keep paying my dues then. Yeah. yeah. So uh, it was in the early '70s when you when you found this, and right. we actually we actually dedicated we do a, a history portion of our podcast, and we dedicated tonight to the early '70s, and we talked about some of the contemporary stuff that was going on in the world in the '70s, and then also we dug into some archives from from back then too to share with our guests, uh, you know, what it might have been like to be at a rabbit or KV show in the ARB back then. So with that said, tell us, like walking into a showroom uh, in the in the early '70s, what did it look like then, and uh, for KVs or rabbits and uh, how does it compare to today maybe margie you want to take that one yeah in uh in the 70s we were of course still in new england so basically what it was like was the rabbit people weren't real happy you were there (laughs) and they put you in the corner and they judged them as they were sweeping up the floor when the show was over so things have changed a lot over the years for cavies with the with the rabbit people and with with everything and um what 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 breeds were recognized back then were, were, did you have 13 breeds of cavies no. like we see today we had abbeys peruvians and americans no satin anything so three breeds that's incredible to think about yeah. uh, yep. <laughs> at, yep. at that time the judges paid a, a rabbit judge will paid a dollar and he was a KV, KV judge. Yeah, they didn't That's have how, to take They didn't take a test or anything. No, no kidding. I did not yeah. know that. And yeah. We were very fortunate. We had a few rabbit judges that really wanted to learn about KVs. Uh, Marvin wow. Carley was one that comes to mind, who uh, the actual New England KV Club still has an award that's in his name because of all the work he did trying to, to prove himself in KVs. Wow. And he was historically a rabbit breeder. Oh, yeah, he was a rabbit breeder and a rabbit judge. He was really one of the first that we knew um, that really, really wanted to learn about cavies, not just get them out of the way, basically. Yeah, that's that's he sounds like a cool guy. I I did not know him. When did when was he active? In Uh, the early 70s. He passed away not too long after that. Wow. uh, When we first started showing the cavies. Uh, but he was he was very instrumental. He was one of the judges we enjoyed having judge because we knew that he he would take the time to learn about him. He handled him very well, and he actually liked doing it. So it was fun having him judge. But the other judge in New England that was, of course, pro cavies was Paul Jerkalonis. Of course, Paul yeah. raised cavies at the time, and he has he has kept up with cavy, you know, his news. He's been at most every judges conference at convention and stuff he always goes to the kv one too so we were lucky to have him kind of as our first mentor sort of um because he he was he did care about the cavies and he was a kv judge as well as a rabbit judge it's funny that you guys mention him as a mentor because i grew up in connecticut as we as we said and paul was one of the judges that I, one of the first judges that I got to know as a kid, and I consider yeah. him one of my mentors. And yeah. he, he did one of the biggest favors 
of probably my maybe my whole rabbit career because when I was in youth and I was kind of cocky and I had American fuzzy lops and and they had really bad ear control. I'm talking like they weren't American fuzzy lops. They were American fuzzy ups. Okay. So yeah. <laughs> but they had big heads and good bodies, but I mean, I just was not taking care of this one issue. And one day he disqualified most of my fuzzy lops at this show in Taunton, Massachusetts. And I was, I was living, you know, I didn't talk to him for about six months, but I'll tell you what, I went home and I called really hard and I fixed the ear thing. And I won best of breed at convention about right. a, a year or two later. Yeah, yeah. He's, he's no nonsense. And uh, he definitely has yeah. an impact on people. So pretty cool. We've got similar mentors. Yes. And um, so what, what, what year about what year did the ARBA start licensing uh, KV judges with a it test? It to be like in the late sixties or the early seventies, probably the late sixties. Um, okay. Because it was, you know, it hadn't been too much before we actually got into it that they started. Uh, yeah, we've KB got a few judges. judges out there. It's got Peter Herman, George Long, Frank Wesley, uh, John Heisey. Those are all guys that I can name that had their license before me. So there's there's getting to be a, a, not as many as, as there was because they're they're starting to drop a little bit. But uh, uh those were the, the the ones that were ahead of me in the in the thing. I think Glenn Carr was probably even the first one out of Yeah, that. Glenn Carr was yeah, always th- pro KV yeah. as well. I think he often says that he was actually a licensed KV judge before he was a licensed rabbit judge. He, he may, may have, have been, been yes. Yeah, or at least may- he was doing KVs before he did rabbits. Yeah, and, and he liked to judge yeah. KVs too. So, you know, that was always nice. One of the things that uh, I find very fascinating about the KV judge's license at our time I didn't have to become a registrar to become a judge. Really? But back then for rabbits, you did? My, my, judge, my KV judges test, and I worked my shows, and that's all I had to do to become a judge. Wow. Was it eight uh, shows like we do today? Yep. Yes, what it was. Mean? Yep. Interesting. And uh, actually, the reason I got my license was the New England KV Club at the time wanted John Heisey to come out and judge a show. And we had met John you know, previous to that. And he said that the only way he'd come out and judge our show is if I applied for my judge's license. Ah. <laughs> so oh, I did, God. and it's all, I, I blame all all the people that don't like my judging. I blame it on John <laughs> for me to do it. <laughs> I've I've never heard anything bad about your judging. You're you're a popular guy. <laughs> so what year was that that you uh, got? Yeah, you, that you I got my my judge's license. license in 1979. And your what is your ARBA judge number? Four two seven. Wow! Yeah, you are, you are an early one. Yep, yep. <laughs> With all due respect, of course. <laughs> wow, that pretty much says it all. <laughs> Did you ever uh, consider? I mean, you said you had rabbits for about five years. Did you ever consider uh, an ARBA rabbit judge license at that time? Uh, I actually did not, because over the years I became allergic to the rabbits. Oh, I didn't know that. My eyes start swelling, and I sneeze, and all kinds of good stuff. Well, that must make uh, conventions fun. Yeah, well, yeah, well, I make sure I take my uh, allergy medicine before I go, and I try to stay out of the main building as much as possible. So that's why, that's why we don't see you over there. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, just kidding. <laughs> so when I think of, uh, when I think of Lucier KVs, I think about what a lot of people in the country will say, and, and that's really two things, but one, size, and then secondly, ears. You guys have put a stamp on your herd over the years. Yeah. Um, I call it the Lucier stamp. You know, Tell us about your program. Uh, the lines that you work with are they new? Are they old? You know how did how did how did you come to this stamp? Because I think that I mean I'm not a KV guy, but you know I'm familiar with the kind of the culture and um, 
if I hear one thing consistently, it's that you guys are really known for stamping out size and ears. So tell us about your program and, and maybe how that developed over the years. Well, that line of white, this is whites and creams that I'm talking about now. Uh, that line of cavies is actually over 100 years old. Um, it was started by a man named Fred, Fred Franklin in Pennsylvania. Um, and George Long got animals from him as a child. And then he got that line. And we got that line from George. And the size and the ears come from those Pennsylvania animals, from George's, from Fred Franklin's. They had long long ugly flat heads back in the day and so you know things have changed but the ears and the size are completely george frank wesley they all lived close together and when we started to show down in pennsylvania which was probably in the 80s i would say early 80s yeah yeah was when we first saw those animals and it was just like we just had to have some but it took us a long time to get them it was a little hard to break into that club, but uh, hmm. <laughs> once we got them, and so over the years, we've modified them a bit. Um, we tried at one point to bring in some animals, mostly to modify the head and increase the size of the eyes. Uh, we brought in some animals from Janet Brady in Arizona, who was once worked with Robert Spitzer. Um and that didn't work out. We got all kinds of fur disturbances and stuff. So it just they didn't cross well. They didn't cross well. So we got rid of those. And then probably right before Houston, even before that, even before that, we got a few animals from Linda Lauks out in Idaho, and her 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 strain crossed well with ours, and it gave us a slightly more curved head, a little more curvature to head, a little bit better eyes maintain the ears and the sides and all of that. So that's kind of how they got where they are. We went 15 years of straight line breeding. We didn't bring any outside stock mm -hmm. in our herd in wow. 15 years. Not in the and, you know, whites and creams. Right, right, not in the whites and creams. Uh, and then we tried, like Smarty said, the ones from Janet, and those didn't cross well. And uh, we we called those out because they weren't working well. And then we went to the ones from Linda, and it, it just changed the way our animals presented themselves. So back then, um, in the beginning, when you finally got you know, kind of like your foot in the door, and you, you got those pigs from the Pennsylvania area, from those guys that had that really old line of, of, of larger pigs with, with good ears, um, your animals must have stood out amongst others then as well, correct? Oh, well, definitely. The, the thing was, and I don't know if you experienced it when you were in New England, but well, you weren't in New England that early because you're not as old as us. But um, there was things were much more regionalized. Um, people didn't travel as much. People didn't communicate as much. So there was a certain pig, American type in New York, which was completely different from what you saw in New England. And then the Pennsylvania and the mid-Atlantic animals were completely different as well. So when you, like, the ones in New York were short, cut off, like golf a head like heads. a golf ball with the eyeballs sticking out the side and little ears standing up straight on the top. Now, they loved them there. They showed, people showed within their region. So when we showed in Pennsylvania, 
they were like everybody else's. And, mm. and even Ohio had their own, and Ohio was very closed. Ohio didn't travel, and the people in Ohio really didn't travel, and they didn't really invite others in as well. So it's only more recently as people have begun to communicate, go to convention, get more, see a lot more different kinds of animals that the animals have become a little bit more, uniform. more uniform. Yeah. You know, we still have the size only because we have, it's the strain itself is large. It's nothing we did or anything to make it large. No, it we just try to continue it because we right. like, we like a large animal. Yeah. Uh, and nothing well, in the standard. You, once you reach your, you know, over two pounds, they're all equal because there's no, no points on weight or anything. We just like a large animal ourselves. Well, I've experienced some of your some of your KVs that have come out west, and yeah. I'm, I'm just amazed at how big they are. In fact, uh, my good friend Kathy Grove, she's uh, she lives not too far from here, and yeah. um, we were we were putting together some some of your animals to send to Malaysia, and and you know I don't know my KV colors very well, so I had her come over, and she would you know she, as I was checking them off and putting them in carriers to be shipped, um, she got she took them out, and you know she's not a very big person, but man, she held up this one white boar, and she's like. Alan, look at the size of this thing. And I turned around and it was like, it was shocking to see this. And that wasn't even one of the good ones. The only, we have never, we don't lose size in the, in the whites and creams. They, we have never like, they have never like started to get smaller or anything like that. They, they maintain their size pretty much on their own. It's not like we have to weed anything out for size. That's a really large, interesting thought because large, go ahead. Our largest one we ever had was four and a quarter pounds. Wow. Was it was a, a, a KV that showed very well as, on the table? Uh he showed we showed him at convention one time and we brought him home and he never bred a sow. So wow. You so know, it's one of those deals. <laughs> when you go into a, a show and you've got a bigger animal, um, is there any advantage to it? I mean, I, I know you said that after two pounds, it doesn't matter. It's kind of all equalized. But is there any kind of psychology that maybe goes into a judge when they see something that's that's just significantly larger um, on the American table than, than the others? Well, yes and no. I mean, you, you can't help when you pick up a big animal with these huge shoulders and stuff on them to have it stick in your head. But as a judge, when I look at animals, I look for balance on the animals. And you, you look for the balance of the, the animal, whether it's a small animal or a big animal. So in proportion, I think it's equal. Uh, some judges don't care for large animals. Some really like the large animals. So it's a just a hit or miss thing. We had, we had one judge that would place our animals last in the class all the time because the ears were too large. Wow. Was that back yep. then or is that? Is that, that was yeah, so Barb last, Butler. Maybe 15 years ago, yeah. <laughs> it was Barb Butler. Oh, but she, again. she was tough, yeah. Yeah, she was. And Ohio had their had, own animals, yeah. and ours didn't fit their their mold. Their mold, and so she did not like them. And you know, she's fun lady to be around. She was great, but we always yeah. knew we were going to get yeah. last when she right. was there. Yeah, but um, it's, you know, you, I don't honestly. I don't think that it's the size. I believe. I don't, I'm not a judge, so I don't know, but. No, oh, Mark, yeah, you're a judge's wife. <laughs> yeah. I love that term, but, and you've been around, so let's but say, you I think when they put their hands on an animal, not just ours, anybody's animal, if they feel a good body there, to me, that's what's good, and good condition, good, you know, all of that. I, I really think you have to put your hands on an animal to know anything about it. Yeah. Honestly. Yeah. It, 
in the year, you know, earlier years, we had judges that we called headhunters. If they didn't have this beautiful round head with the curved skull, they didn't do anything. It didn't matter what their body was or anything else. It was just strictly being judged on the heads. And that's really, really modified over the years. You don't mm-hmm. see very, very few headhunters anymore uh, judging caves. Yeah. Whether it's oh, a rabbit judge or a guinea pig judge balance. or anything, they look more yeah. for balance on the animal now. It's, a, it's something that I've actually thought about and never talked to anyone about, but that, that term headhunter was something that I grew up hearing like in the, yeah. in the 90s. And, and then you just stopped hearing about iris fuzzy lops, which have three points on the head. So to be honest, I mean, you have to be a little bit of a headhunter. Right, yeah. exactly. Because size yeah. is part of the equation. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's, it's a term you don't hear anymore. The only breed that has points on the head is the Texel. There's wow. zero points on the head on any, all the rest of the animals. I, it's it's, it's part of type. Right. It's yeah. part of type, but you know, uh, uh, just an assigned point for the head. There is none. Uh, that's so interesting. Um, back to the size thing. Like I'll use, uh, I'm going to constantly use rabbits as my analogy, by the way, it's what I'm most comfortable with. But, you know, as so let's take mini Rex and Rex, for example, when you get a, um, a Rex, it's bigger, you know, it's five or so pounds bigger. Uh, you know, the, their type faults tend to exacerbate like long shoulders, for example, they're easier to see in a Rex and they are maybe in a mini Rex. So right. do you find that in larger American caveys, for example, let's use those as, as an example, that uh, those type faults, which otherwise might've been hidden by a small American or one, you know, still one that fits the standard in terms of weight, but do you find that type faults sort of exacerbate or become a little more obvious? And is that a challenge? Well, in, in some cases it is because a longer animal, people have an idea how, you know, what the length of the animal is supposed to be. Well, you get a much larger animal, and of course they're going to be larger and they're going to be longer, but it may not fit their idea of ideal cavey. So that's that's the one thing that does that, you know, that is detrimental. But it, right. it, it's not, it's really not that the faults are worse in a, in a bigger animal. It's, they're still balanced, and that's always something that George has been huge on, that, you know, they're balanced. And, and so you can't take a four pound animal or three and a half pound animal, put this little tiny head on it or have it very short and cobby. It's going to look awful, you know, so balanced, but I don't know if the, I don't really notice many judges commenting on that. They're too long no, or anything. Very like seldom that. anymore. Hmm. Okay. That's cool. Um, so let's talk about some of your history. You've been doing this since the early seventies. What are some of the, the, the big wins that, that you both have had and, and on the table over well, the years that you're most proud of? The biggest one we ever had was the Houston convention, ARBA convention. Or what year was that? Fort Worth. I'm sorry, Dallas, Fort Worth. Yeah. Uh, it was our first best in show at a national competition. Uh, and it was like one of the biggest thrills of our life. Mm-hmm. The only thing with that win, we had actually, sold the animal to a youth from California before the show. I mean, the co- the sale wasn't completed until after the show, but we had basically sold that animal to a youth in California and kept the sister to that one, who we thought at the time was better. Hmm. So our first best in show went, went to California, so we never got any babies at all out of her. He got a couple litters out of her. What was that young man's name? Oh, I have to say, though, when Steve called them and told them that was your pig that won best in show, and first he didn't believe it. <laughs> and know. then when he did, he said, Do, are you sure you don't want to keep it? Just send me the sister. 
which was pretty good for a young kid. Pretty I cool. thought, you know, Nate something. Nate Solis. Oh, yeah, Nate. Solis. Yeah. Nate, Nate Solis, Solis or something like that. From California. Yeah. Yep. That was cool. But was but you both kind of did that for each other. You honored the, the sale. Uh, regardless. Yeah, and, and, and then he said, you know, hey, I kind of <laughs> yeah, guilt- right. I would feel guilty doing it, too. But um, right. Yeah. No, we we still sent him that animal. But, you know, that was that was a huge stone. Then we did one best in show at yep. Pete Last Ohio uh, specialty. And uh, at the Michigan specialty show. Right. At Michigan. Yeah. That was a long time. Honestly. Coming. This right. West American with the Rhone came pretty darn close to yeah. the other wins. Um, you could have knocked me over with a feather. Yeah. <laughs> pretty cool. I, had, I wasn't judging, so I got to handle some of the blacks that were across the table. And I, in my mind, I thought black was going to win. I didn't think, you know, we, we didn't have a chance. So when they picked the Rhone, uh, it just thrilled me. I was just so excited. And the most exciting part is the, the there were two judges on Saturday that picked Best American together. And then on Sunday, two more judges picked Best American, and they both picked the role for Best American. Also, but the blacks weren't there on yeah, Sunday. Yeah, not, so. not well. Not as many blacks were there on Sunday, but it was it was a pretty consistent win. So we were really excited. Yeah, that that's a that's that says a lot, and it says a lot as a judge too. If you're judging, and you know, you go into it and you realize afterwards, like, wow, this this is the same animal that that won under you know three or four yeah. other judges. It's it's a it's right. a feather in the cap really for both sides. I, I love exactly. that. Exactly. So we're gonna talk more about that win in a second because I want to dedicate okay. quite a bit of time to that very special uh KV and its variety. Um let's let's talk about the um ACBA specialty. Uh first of all for those listening that maybe from the rabbit side, what is the ACBA specialty and um what equivalent is it uh to to rabbits? Okay it's it's basically the ARBA convention of KVs. Well, it's, it's, it's just like any other specialty because the the, we are basically a specialty club of the ARBA. So just like the dwarf specialty or the, you know, any other French lop yeah. or whatever, um, we are, it's our specialty show. So the AR, ACBA puts on a show. Actually, the sponsoring club does the show. The ACBA sponsors the show on Saturday, and then the sponsoring the sponsoring oh. club does it the Sunday show. But they do all the work. So anyway. ACBA uh, KV breeders use the term specialty, but in rabbits, if we're going to talk about say like the Polish uh, yeah. annual show, we would say the national show. Right, so, exactly. the national same show. thing. So right. a- so your annual ACBA specialty, there's only yeah. one per right. year, mm-hmm. and, and that's, that's usually held in the spring where you've got the ARBA convention in the fall. Yeah. So it's pretty consistent with rabbits. Right. Yeah. And uh, was there a 2020 ACBA specialty? No. There was not. It got canceled because of COVID. So how was it going into this uh, this specialty? Was it, Were numbers good? Were people excited? Were you guys excited? It no, was. We it, were, the numbers were, very, were good. The problem was it was in Ohio. Ohio was on lockdown much longer than the southern states. So up until couple weeks before they they thought they were going to have to cancel it was supposed to be in april yeah it was supposed to be in april in april but then they ended up moving it to june they were able to move it the the ohio cave club did a fantastic job of trying to adjust and move and keep it going and and they did an amazing job and yeah, and sure we had did. about 500 i think in open over 500 between open and you yeah wow that's so pretty good, that right? wasn't bad. It's not as big. We've had more, but under the circumstances, because awesome. don't forget in June, 
a lot of people can't fly their animals in True. because it's too hot on their end, as you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. So it was it was good. And the Ohio KV Club did an amazing job. Yes, they did. We had a great time. Yeah, we did. That's awesome. It sounds like the, the KV folks are as, uh, becoming as flexible and, and yeah. bending as everyone has to be during yeah, the science. Yeah, exactly. Right? They were amazing. Exactly. All right. So back so to the a week, up until a week before they were going to have to have the banquet on the fairgrounds under a tent. Oh my gosh! And the state opened it up, and they were able to get a, a hall to have the the banquet in within gosh. a short period of time. So they did a lot of running around mm-hmm. to on get the things accommodated. Yeah. So that so what you're talking about is the 2021 ACBA specialty, or what we might call in rabbits the ACBA American yes. Cavia Breeders Association National Show, and that just took place uh, June 11, 12, and 13, and that was in Cleveland, Ohio. Correct? Yes, it was. And I said about 500 uh, KVs attended, and I think mm-hmm. there were people there from all over all over the U.S. Correct? There were Pretty much was. so. Yeah. Yeah. There was people from Texas. There was people from California. California. Uh, um, we would have had people from Canada, but their borders aren't open. Yeah, yet. they're still stuck up there. Well, that that must be an impact because you have a a pretty big contingent in the Ontario KV Club, like Mary right. and, and her friends. That, so, and none of them could part, have come down. That was part of the reason the numbers were lower than they had expected because we were hoping they were going to be able to come. Yeah, exactly. And they show a lot of very, yeah. Too, so yeah, very close. Um, so let's talk about uh, showing KVs at this ACBA specialty. This this big show. And by the way, is the ACBA specialty typically or historically are there more uh, more KVs shown? At an, at an annual ACBA specialty than you might see at the ARBA convention for KVs? It more depends on the location, location. than anything. Um, when it's like when Indiana had the convention, I think, what do we have? We had large numbers. Like, but when they had the specialty show, we had like eight or 900 animals at the specialty show. Yeah, and I think and Indiana, more at Indiana convention, had it. right? And there was larger numbers at convention. So, so in the middle of the country, we yeah. get a better attendance, no matter if it's specialty or convention. Got it. That's pretty consistent then with rabbits too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So if you're going into, I'll use again rabbits as an example. If you know, if I was going to go into the the convention and and I was going to think about like you know some of the top rabbits that that I might expect to see on the best in show table or or maybe even take best in show. And I'm thinking about white New Zealands, broken black mini racks, tort holland lops, um, at an ACBA specialty or even at a, a convention. What what breeds of KVs and varieties you know might go into your minds as as, as KV breeders and longtime KV breeders as ones that you're probably going to see at the top if not taking the, the biggest prizes? Well, most of the long hair breeds, uh, especially the normal coated ones, uh, Teddies, uh, Americans. Those, I would say, those are the ones that typically the best in show comes from. At our special show this year, and Abyssinian took it. But that's very that's unusual. It was a beautiful animal. And it was an animal that deserved it. Uh, but you don't see that as often because there's more things you can pick apart on an Abbey than you can on the other breeds. So and, it's, it just depends on whose animals are at the prime condition at the right time. Let's put it that way. Absolutely. And um, let's talk about your breed in American. What what varieties uh, tend to tend to take best of breed, at least, uh, in Americans when it comes to an ACBA specialty or a uh, convention? Well, uh, pretty much whites or creams, blacks. They're very highly developed because they've been around a long, long time. And then after that, it kind of depends on where you are in the country. Like in our area, Margot Purdy has beautiful red 
Americans and Golden Agouti Americans. Now, she's been working on them as long as we've been working on the whites and creams. So forever and a day. Um, so it depends on where you are. But for the same reason that an Abbey doesn't usually win best in show, a roan or a broken color or tortoiseshell and white or any of the ones that are easy for the colors to have faults, faults in them do not normally win. I think, though, sometimes judges will select away from the whites because some judges just don't want to pick a white because they just think it's too easy. <laughs> but you both, but you both know there's a lot more that goes into a yeah. white American than just the color. Yeah, absolutely. The thing is, the white I mean, the, the main thing you have to do is you have to keep them clean, and that's a lot of work. You have to make sure you have good quality shavings. Uh, you have to make sure you keep their cages clean. But uh, you when, don't have to worry about undercolor. Right. You don't have to worry about evenness of color. So there's some cre- credibility to what they say. Right. Um, it sure as heck is a harder to get a roan than a, a white. Right. But, you know, I would call the roans the yeah, but for <laughs> variety. Yeah. You know, this is a really nice roan if it didn't have that little patch of red on the butt or uh-huh. if it's it's a very nice roan if it didn't have those spots on the belly. So there's always something. Yeah, I, I know what you're saying. I've said it in rabbits too. Like, yeah. like, uh, like I don't know, like a lynx mini rex or something. Like, yeah. it's, it's, it's good for a lynx, but it's but, not going to hold a candle to anything else. The thing so, you have to remember, there's 30 points on color on a self cavy, South American cavy. So white almost always gets all their points right off the bat for color. So everything below that is competing against something that's already got all its points for color. Uh, yeah, so I, that that is a topic way. I want to, I want to, I want to pick your brain about in a second. So hold that thought mm-hmm. um, because I, I it, it just blows my mind about how the, the KV standard is laid out in points. So we'll get to that in a second. I can't wait to, okay. to hear more about it, but let's talk about your 2021 ACBA specialty entry. When you guys were driving up from Tennessee, um, what, what pigs in your entry and in, in the back of your vehicle were you most excited about? Uh, probably the whites. I mean, we're, we're very excited about the Rollins, but more to compete against other Rollins. We knew we had some pretty good Rollins, but the ones we were expecting to do well were the Whites. So, because that's the ones we normally win with if we're going to win. They did nothing. Well, okay, they won, they say, won variety. They they, it's oh. not like they did nothing. They won variety. They just weren't quite in the condition some of the animals, other animals were. And when you get down to nitty-gritty, that's one of the things you can cut them for. So... I, we've been uh, kind of circling the circling the drain, and we're going to dive right into Roan now. Uh, tell us, because everyone knows that you, you both have captured the, the American Best of Breed at the 2021 ACBA National Show with a Roan. So tell us about this Roan. Boar, sow, uh, does it have a name? And, um, and, and tell us about that day and what it took that Roan to go to the very top. Well, I... The Rones have kind of been my project. We do them together, but they I wanted them. And they actually came from Jane Morehouse out in California, who has the best Rones I've ever seen in my life. Um, but so that day, when we were standing there watching Best of Breed, or Best of Breed and they stepped back and they said, well, you know, there's some very nice, very nice animals here. You know, the black was very nice and the the white. tortoiseshell and white yeah. was nice. No, they didn't. They said yeah. nothing about the white. That's why. So they didn't. They got through all of that. And they said nothing about the white. So I'm like, well, 
either we won best of breed or hmm. they hate the white. And and Chase, I swear to God, he was he apparently watching me because he said I almost I saw you almost fall on the floor. And they said, well, you know, today it's going to go to that stunning Roan. And they pointed at her and I went, holy shit, ah. that's the name. <laughs> and did you fall over? Yeah, well, no, just about. Here. <laughs> I was just like, we're done. We don't name our animals generally. We, they just have your numbers. So when she said, holy shit. <laughs> so we we actually, uh, Sharon, Mice. Sharon Meissen does the ACBA report and the, and the domestic rabbit. And she says, well, I don't think they're going to want me to put that name in the, in the domestic rabbit. So, H dot so it'll say dot. H dot S dot. So yeah. that's her uh, name. But. Well, and they can, they can refer to the podcast for the real rendition. So. Yeah, yeah right, exactly. exactly. That's probably the best way. Yeah. HS is her name. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. Um, when you were, uh, so, so she, so, and it was a Sal, correct? Yeah. Correct. Um, so, the, so the seniors house, she wins uh, best of breed. And then you go on to best in show uh, where all 13 breeds are competing. Um, how did you go? F- I mean, clearly you're probably still in shock, right? But uh, yeah, how did you feel yeah. going into, into best in show at that point with your own? I, I was hopeful, but not overly so because you're competing really against the best of, you know, there was some beautiful animals there, even though it was a bit of a smaller convention. So And I know the top long-haired breeders are there and the top Texel breeders are there and everything else. The fact that they would pick an Abbey really surprised me, but... It was well-deserved. Yeah, it was well-deserved. But um, so I didn't... With Arone, I was hoping, but I wasn't really optimistic that it would happen. And she did get second reserve. So, you know, I mean, that's that's not horrible. She got somewhere. No, she was um, top top three then. Yeah, yeah she was top three. Three. And Second what loser. you mentioned the Abbey as best in show. What was reserve in show at the ACL? Uh, Texel. Texel. Yeah. It, sure, and is, is that uncommon as well? Not really. Uh, not really. There's there's been quite a few Texels. Not when well. Sherry's around. Yeah, Sherry's got some really good Texels. Yeah. She's got and some beautiful Texels. She's local there in Ohio, correct? Yes, yeah, she is. Yeah, she's in Ohio. Very cool. So um, let's go back to Roan. We're going to dedicate the rest of this uh, podcast to to Roan. Uh, for those of us that don't know what that means, because it's not a rabbit term, I, I, I think of Roan, I think of horses. Um, right. What does Roan mean, and uh, what does it look like? It's an even interspersing of any self-solid or a goody color. Right. With, and the Roaning is the white part. So they should be evenly white all over the whole animal. Now, you could also have a, tri- a trirone, which is black, red, and white roan. Um, and basically what that winds up being is a very good brindle roan. Yeah, brindle is an, an Ideally, that's what you're looking of for. black and red. There is no such thing as a really good brindle. But, um, yeah, so that's what roaning is. It's just like a horse, I think. Just yeah. Evenly interspersed. It's also a lethal gene. If you if you breed two roans together, you can get lethal babies out of it, where they're so, born blind and bad teeth. You do get roans also, and you can get like we breed our our red roans together. We can either get reds, roans, or lethals out of a cross like that. Wow! So you take so, a challenging variety and then and then yeah. add that equ- to the equation. It makes it even right. more. Right. Gosh. And um, is, there a, is there a typical base color in roans that typically do better than, than others? Well, 
the, the main three colors you see in Rones are blue, are black Rones, red Rones, and the Tri-Rones. There are Agouti Rones and uh, solid Rones, but you don't see them as, as often. Those are the first three colors I mentioned where the, the top three colors are shown in Rones. So is it, this sounds like a, a kind of a novice question, but is it a white KV shot with colored hairs or a colored no. KV shot with white it's hairs? It's a, a self-colored KV shot with white hairs. Very yeah, interesting. Yeah, self-solid or goody. Yeah. Um, if you could describe the perfect roan, let's just use Reddit as, as an example because that's a nod to your big win this weekend. Uh, what would a what would a perfect roan, a red roan American look like in your or in your eyes? The animal was red from back to front, and the roaning went from back to front. Uh, and on the belly and everything. Even what, what you see a lot in roans, and it's always something we're working to get away from, is a lot of times they have a darker patch over their rump or they'll be spotted on their belly. You just want it to be very even over the entire area. Yeah, and when he says a darker patch over the rump, what he means is it's just a little lighter and roaning. It just doesn't have quite more, as more much roaning. Yeah, and more self-color. And so their, it, their heads can have a blaze. You, they don't have to be solid. So especially from the shoulders back that you want that And their heads even. can be roaned as well. Right, their heads can be roaned. They can be solid. But they, they can have a blaze. Are, yeah. Uh, but the rest of the body should be completely rolled. So that's actually the next question I was going to ask you is that I was reading the the Roan standard um, in the standard of perfection last night. And it described exactly what you said, that you could have a solid head. You could have a Roan head. You could have maybe a Dutch blaze. You could even have a butterfly. So mm-hmm. um, in your ideal, or maybe in, in what you're doing in your own program, is there a certain head that you would prefer over over the other options? A solid head. We like the solid heads. Because it gives a better appearance to the head. It makes the head look a little shorter and a little rounder. Um, if you have a blaze, it tends to make the head look flatter. I don't, personally, I don't care for the blazes. I like the solid heads. Yeah, see, I don't mind as much as she, she likes the solid heads better, but I, I like either one. But I think a solid head makes the animal look nicer. This sow actually has a little slash of white on her head. But it's not, it doesn't, it doesn't distract enough to change or alter her head shape. You don't lose points for it because it's a lot of the standard. Yeah. Um, And so you, you touched on color points earlier and this is something that's, that will blow the mind of any rabbit breeder that's listening that maybe hasn't taken a look at the, at the KV standard, but color points not only vary by breed, which is common in rabbits, that, that always happens, but um, but within within varieties of a single breed like Americans. So that's that's really foreign to us. Maybe right. you could explain a little bit about that. And let's use Americans as an example. And if you could use some some points examples amongst the, the, the different color groups and and how on earth, you know, type points change within the breed, right. and, uh, uh, you know, in in collaboration with the change in uh, color points. Well, in, in a self-American... There's 30 points for color. Uh, then there's 20, if I'm not mistaken, I'd have to get my standard out, but 25 points for type. Uh, and those are the two main things on a self-American. When a you, self right. being black, red, Right, white. a solid color all over the whole body, a self, solid self-color over the whole body. Uh, then you start getting into your uh, ticked animals. You get into your agoutis. Marked. Your marked animals, and there's 50 points for color and markings on those breeds, on those varieties. So you're going to find that people will spend more time working on the markings and the color versus the type 
than you will say in a South American where the points aren't as large. So what it means really is that a slightly less typey golden agouti American could beat a, a South American um, that has better type. Right, but not maybe not as good a color. Maybe not as good a color, yeah. So I understand well, the rationalization. Was was that something that has has been has this been around as long as you guys have been uh, breeding cavies where the standard I, was weighted? Well, yes. I think it's been to um, keep the emphasis on colors where color is important to the animal, where they feel like golden agouti. There's so many factors that go into a golden agouti or a tan, or a tan pattern um, or a a Dutch cavy, right, uh, or even a even a tortoiseshell and tortoise white. Tortoiseshell and white. You have to have you have to have the right colors as well as the right pattern, pattern. of colors on yeah. that animal. So there's a lot of things, a lot more things involved in getting the color and the patterns of color good right. than there is on a self cavy. So, so it's rewarded more for for that part. But it totally. does tend to leave breeders uh, not being quite as concerned on type, although that's, that's changing in the last few years too. So, Well, I mean, the thing is, if you had a really well-patched tortoiseshell and white yes. that had inferior type, it could win. It could win, exactly. It could win. Well, and, and that's that kind of leads into my next question. If I'm going to use rabbits again as an example, and I'll use New Zealand's, where you have, you have black, blue, broken, red, and white. It, it would be like the blacks, the blues, the brokens, and the reds getting more points for color and less on type than the white that is still competing in the same breed. So the white would have more body points and less on color. But to me that, that almost rationalizes less, uh, you know, less quality New Zealand type, which, and then, and then giving, you know, nod to an exceptionally colored animal. But for me, that's, that's not a classic New Zealand. So in cavies, like an American, which I still consider like they're, they're still one of the best body breeds. Right. So do do you, do you feel that at all? Or is that something that's felt by, by breeders? Honestly, I think, Alan, if when you're talking about rabbits, particularly talking about New Zealand, they were they were probably still are predominantly a meat breed. So their standard is based on meat, on like the, type. the it's based based on the loin and the hips and all of that. That's what they were for, and that's really what they were being bred for, and that's what they were being judged for. Um, Cavies, on the other hand, are more of a specialty animal, if you want to call it that. I don't really know. Um, and I think you have a lot of breeds of rabbits that are that now, too, which we didn't. I mean, you know, all the new, the more fancy it's like, rabbits. It's like taking a petite and showing it against New Zealand. You're looking yeah. for two totally different types of animals. Yeah. And you assign the points But I by think the that's breed. why the points... Like right. on in New Zealand, were all assigned the same, right? Despite the color, because they were looking for meat. How much right. loin did it have? How smooth right. were its hips? How big were its shoulders? You know. And, and the problem is with with your marked animals and cavies, it is a lot bigger struggle to get good markings on the animal than it is to get good color on a self. Uh, so you're you're rewarding it for the the parts that make it difficult to breed so let's talk about let's talk about your roan uh clearly she had exceptional color and a beautiful head um was her was her body as good as Mm -hmm. your whites she has a very nice body i I would like to have her body on all our whites she has a beautiful high crown yeah she has 
she has good flesh condition and she's she's tight she's and, got really yeah. good shoulders on her very nice good crown, very good hips yeah. I mean, we look for this a lot of the same things that you do in rabbits. We look for the, the width of the shoulders, the balance of the body going back towards the back, the, the curvature over the rump, not how, how smooth it is, yeah. that you don't have cow hocks on it, that they're not undercut. Yeah. It's a lot of things you look for in the rabbits, we look for in the caves also. And her, like her father is a boar that has only so so um, roaning, but he has. And when you're talking color, you're also talking about the red color as well. So she has good red color as well as good roaning. So, so and in a blind study, like if you went in there with your with a blindfold on and you put her next to one of your exceptional whites, it sounds like you might not be able to tell the difference, right? Well, uh, pretty much. Uh, that's, that's pretty that's cool. how I feel about her. Yeah. And not all her roans are like no. she just she has an exceptional type on her. Yeah. Uh, we showed an intermediate style. Roan style that actually probably has a little bit better roaning than her, but she doesn't quite have the type and she doesn't have the color. Her red color is nowhere near as good. But she as will the have the style. type. But she she's... will she will come up with good type and probably do well on the table as she gets older because she's actually got a little bit more even roaning on her than the senior did. But she's got lighter red color, so. Well, I hope you guys have some shows coming up, uh, or do you shut down for the Not summer? Not till August. We have one in August. She'll be ready for that. Everybody else is going and breeding. So yeah, most everything we showed this past weekend, especially, is going to be a it's breeding time. Yeah, it's that time of year. Yeah. So if you were going to give advice to to breeders uh, currently or maybe wishing to raise Roan KVs, um, what advice would you give them? And, and by the way, what varieties pair well with with roan? I mean, you mentioned all the problems yeah. that you could have by re- breeding roan to roan. So, so how do you go about doing this? If if, if you were to offer advice to people with currently or, or wishing to raise roan cavies, what, what I would tell anybody wanting to raise roans or basically any variety, get the best stock you can find. First of all, get a standard. Second of all, read it. Third of all, go to the shows, put your hands on some animals, and then. Get, go and find the best roans that you can find. It depends on what color roan you're raising, what would go with it. Like the reds go with the with red the red roans. Uh, with black roans, you'd want blacks to breed into it. Golden agoutis or, sol- or uh, tick solids or anything like that. You'd want that with color maybe, American. To breed to a red roan. Yeah. You want to get good golden agoutis or good solid goldens or right. solid slowers to breed to a, a roan, so. But, and, and if they, you know, and honestly, the roan is a bit of a luck of the draw. I, what we found is that um, the bad characteristics or the things you don't like, like a slight, we ha- sometimes have a like a slightly darker patch coming over the shoulders or a spot on the butt. Oh, all that comes through just fine. Um, we have a boar that has extremely even roaning. That does not come up every time. So, and when they um, when they they molt, right? When they come yeah. back with, it, with their mm-hmm. with their second or third or whatever coat, do they continue with that same uh, consistent yeah. pattern if, if they were? Well, yes. uh, actually, the babies that are very very darkish or darker looking in roaning, well, as they grow, could become more a little bit more even more even. And is the base color then compromised with age? So do you see fading in no. reds and blacks? Well, 
it's just like if you have a red, they're going to be darker when they're born than when they're seniors. But they, uh, not as they get older, though. They don't. No, like, not as they get older now. Or anything. But yeah. the, what they start with to when they're time they're seniors, their coach usually lighten up some. So you want to start out with a very dark baby, and then it'll come up with be a good red color. Right. If you have a very light red to start with, it's going to be even lighter when it gets to be a senior. Yeah. When is the roaning actually evident? I mean, you mentioned some up and coming. Okay. So you can get excited right away. Yes. Yeah. Yep. Cause you, so, I'm sure you about know the pain. color, but then, then you get with good color. Maybe you don't have to. I hear you. Never ending battle. So um, we were very fortunate. Uh, we were able to get a bunch of animals from Jane, who at the time, and I still, I still believe she's the top roan breeder in the country. Mm-hmm. No doubt uh, about it. Most consistent roan breeder. Let's put it that way. And she had good reds. We also very fortunate that we have Margot Purdy in our area who has extremely good reds. So we were able to get animals from both sides of the country and blend them together, and they've done very, very well for us. So, um, you know, in rabbits, sometimes when we do those crosses, again, I'm going to use white New Zealand as an example. If you bring a white New Zealand into your broken program, hoping that you're going to, you know, improve type, which is, you know, the most important thing, you don't get broken because white is something else. So if you take any... See, you just find it happens to find a, a beautiful self red American that you can buy and you take mm-hmm. it on and you want to use it in your own project. Will you get Rones the first generation or does that self have to actually carry uh Roning? No, it doesn't have to carry it, but you it's it's Ro- you could get just reds, you could just get reds or you could get Rones out of it, or you can get all Rones. It's just the luck of the draw on it because Roning is a dominant gene, so it'll express in the first generation. Got it. So that helps. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Too. Yeah. Very cool. Um, you know, you both are considered to be really at the top of your game. And for many, many years, what advice would you give to breeders um, who have their eyes on the best in show table, regardless of what KV breeder variety, uh, you know, they're, they're, they're pursuing or even rabbits for that matter. What advice as, as longtime top breeders and, and a judge uh, would you give people? I think the most important thing, and I'll tell you what we did. We had gotten out of KV's for about a year probably 20, 25 years ago, because we were both working a lot. When we got back in, the animals we picked up were, we had the whites and creams we got back from good breeders. We did not show a true senior sow until we had been breeding for five years. Anything that was good enough to be put on the show table went to the breeding pen. And then we got to the point where we could show the second best animal in the litter and keep the best ones for breeding. And then it got to the point where it had enough consistency that we could afford to show the best sow and breed the second best sow. But you have to put in the time and the work and have the patience to work with the breed. You can't, you know, you may get lucky and buy buy a pair of animals that throws you best in show animals the first generation. But in most cases, that doesn't happen. You have to be willing to put in the, the work and the time to get them where you want to be. And the other thing to me is to talk to people who have had animals whatever breed or variety or whatever, rabbits or cavies, talk to the people that are at the top, listen, and always listen to what everybody has to say because you never know when you'll pick up a kernel of advice that might help you. And there's no time in your career that you know everything about everything. Like we still are. Yeah. And so that's the most important thing. One of the things that when I was judging – or when I still judge, my my hardest breed that I, I had to judge at first was Abby's. 
And every time I would judge Robert Spitzer's animals or George Long's animals or Jerry Price's animals, after the show, I say, okay, guys, how'd I do today? Yeah. And I'm not talking about how their animals did against somebody else's animals. I'm talking about how their own animals were placed against each other because those are the animals that, that they knew. And I was never afraid to have them say, hey, you screwed up today, and this is why. Sometimes I didn't agree with what they were saying, but other times that's how I learned to be a better uh, Abby judge. But, I'm not the best in the country, but I think I do a decent job on them now. But never be afraid to talk to people. No. And when, when you're new to exhibiting, I always tell them, listen to all the judges. Do not take one judge and say, this judge is always right. You have to listen to the opinions of all the judges and then come up with your, your own game plan and your own opinion of your animals and keep study to that. And get one breed, one, right. get your animals from one good breeder and don't put anything into it until you've had them for a while and you see how how they're coming out. Because to and, me, it can't unless you're an experienced breeder, you can't take a couple of animals from this person, a couple of animals from that person, a couple of animals, and, and come out with anything other than a mess. Um, and you might you might be lucky. Some to do people it, do it. Chances are it doesn't happen. But they're usually very experienced people that know what they're right. doing. So. so, would you say that over um, the entire KV industry in this country, at least, line breeding is something that's 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 really normal, if not advocated highly for? Well, honestly, we, there there's. We're, we're big-time line breeders. That's what we generally do. We went 15 years of having the same line of animals without bringing but any outside stock I don't, I don't stock know in. if that's really – there's a lot of different types of people raising yeah. cavies. And as I'm sure is in rabbits where you have some people that are just kind of doing it for fun. And so, you know, they like, oh, look at that one. That one's got pretty colors. I'm going to get that one. And then I'm going to get this one. And what will happen if I put these two together? And then there's your people who are very serious about what they're doing. And I would say that they line breed yes. to a, a, a good extent. And so. once the 15 years were up with us, we knew what some of the problems were that we needed to fix. Yeah. That's why we started going outside. But even that, we only did it twice. Like I said, we went to... To uh, Janet's animals, and then went to to uh, Linda Lauk's animals, and that's the only two animals we out we outbred to. I mean, we got animals from George, or we got animals from Frankie, because that was basically all the same line. It's all our line. So we we did read those, but other than going to other people, we did not. So they really weren't even total outcrosses in essence. There was no, some, there was some no. relation. No. no, they were straight line bred. Wow. Um, so you've taken best in show at the ARBA convention. You've taken best in show at the ACBA national. You just took best of breed American with, um, a, a very unique color. That's the Roan. What are your next goals, uh, in, in your KV program? Not to die. No, we just, we're, we continually try to improve our animals. Uh, you know, it's still a thrill. It was a huge thrill to get that. Um, and, and, but we enjoy the people and the shows and the, you know, I'm the merchandise person for ACBA. So I like being in the booth and talking to people and just hanging out. 
and going to the banquets and going yeah. to dinners with people and just laughing and enjoying yourself. Yeah, and that's it's what the still, hobby is. To it's us. still a huge thrill to win, yep. especially this one was really amazing. And you know, I if we don't get best of breed, we kind of feel like we must have messed up somewhere along the line, or you know, somebody else like Armando yeah. came <laughs> up with some really nice blacks. Mm. But uh, but it's just. Uh, you know, our expectations are to win best of breed at least at a show. That's not that's We'd not like bragging. No. That's nothing. But that's what our idea of having a good show is. Yeah. If we do less than that, we're not unhappy. But it's not what we strive to do. A little, maybe a little unhappy. Yeah. Well, <laughs> let's be honest. <laughs> Um, where do you both see the KV industry going in the next 10 years? And that may be in regards to new breeds and varieties. Um, you know, you just had a, a revamp of the, tw- of the ARBA standard of perfection with a standardization of really varieties across almost yeah. all right. KV breeds. So where do you see KVs uh, going in the next 10 years? Well, I know there's, there's a, a few colors or at least a couple colors and uh, one new breed I know of that are on the horizon here that people were working on to try to get presented. Uh, the Blue American is just, uh, their COD has been accepted. Uh, we just have to wait for the ACBA's membership approval of the, of the variety. And if you haven't seen them, see They're them. Gorgeous. They are blue like a blue rabbit. Like a, a blue satin yeah. uh, rabbit. Uh, that or dark blue, blue color or blue Dutch. Yeah. That's the color these blues are, and they're phenomenal. Yeah. I'll, I'll tell you my story. I was at the Bradford uh, premiere oh. show yep. in, in England. Oh, yep. maybe two or three years ago. And I had to catch myself because I kept going over to the KV area to watch the blues being judged because it was so striking. Yeah. I I think the late, one of the breeders had come over from Sweden to show and she she was really famous for, for the variety. I just could not believe they are exactly as you described. They're as, they're as blue as Dutch. They're as blue as they're beautiful. I was so excited when I saw those. Sharon Meissen is the one that's going to be working on the COD. So I think she's going to do a great job and, and get them through so but they're beautiful but as far as i mean our hobby our our fancy has sort of turned in some cases more to people who are not serious breeders i mean we still have a lot of good serious breeders as well but we also have other people that are not around too long and kind of just enjoy the caveys and and you know, we nothing, need them both. Right. There's nothing wrong with it. It's just for, it's uh, a little bit different. That's yeah, all. it's a little different. Yeah, I always like to say that, you know, the, the people that maybe come with lesser quality, they still pay the same entry fee that, that mm-hmm. the rest of us exactly. do. Yeah. And they still They're contribute to have fun, too. A lot of them yeah. are wanting to learn, and a lot. some of them are just there to have fun. Yeah. And, I mean, a lot of people have, you know, there's people that have, like, they're lonely or whatever. And so they yes, get cavies yeah. and they can come and bring them to the shows. And, we've, you know, we've raised all kinds of small animals over the years and the best ones for pets, for kids are the, definitely the cavies yeah. out of all of that. Hmm. So it's, you know, we, we can do it from firsthand experience. We know, you know, that what we feel is the best for our kids is they're, they're big enough that the young kids can handle without hurting them. They don't try to escape like a gerbil or a hamster does. They very seldom ever bite. Uh, they just make a great pet for kids. So, and we are getting some people from the rabbit side too. That's right, we to are, the dark side. We're bringing a few oh. people to the dark side as well. <laughs> I, I know a few of those people. Trust me, yeah, I, yeah. I, I give them heck for. I'm telling no, you, that. No, no. <laughs> they, I believe Randy might have even said. No, I don't know if it was Randy. It might have been Jim Goodrich that said he really likes to judge the cavies. <laughs> <laughs> 
I've heard, I've, I've heard him say that too. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm just kidding. I, and I, and you know, with RHD going on now and rabbits, yeah. I have seen the shift move a little faster because people are still in the same ARBA family, but uh, they want to continue with what they know. But let's say RHD doesn't, uh, doesn't affect KB. So KB shows are going to continue yeah, on. Yes. We're very fortunate. We're that, that virus well, really scares me for rabbit people. That's, that's hard to take. We're also lucky that we have a strong regional club that can actually put on KV only shows if we have to. So yeah, that's really important. Yeah. Um, before I ask my final question, uh, will one of you give a plug to the ACBA and how uh, our listeners might find out more about KVs and the American KV Breeders Association? Yep, the American KV Breeders uh, Association has their website is the ACBA. Hang on. ACBA online. Um, and that has all the information on how to join. Um, it has our constitution bylaws, all of that on there. We also have a Facebook page. Um, and they could, they can only get onto that particular Facebook page if they're members of the ACBA. Um, so, so got to join the ACBA. Yes. Yeah, ACBAonline.com. Yeah. ACBAonline.com. ACBA and that's com. got, uh, membership applications mm-hmm. on it. It's got a lot of information about the, the ACBA on it. And that's the best place to learn. Uh, they have an exceptionally good newsletter. It's called the Journal of the ACBA, uh, or JACWA for short, that once you become a member, you get that every uh, quarterly. It's packed with information about the KVs. Uh, talk to KV breeders, uh, the red shows, or if mm-hmm. you see people online, uh, anytime anybody requests information from us, we try to supply it to them. So there's a lot of different ways. Yeah, and we have um, nine directors um, across the country. And so if you can get to any KV person, you can find out who your director is. And your director should be very um, forthcoming and helpful in uh, in any way, whatever you need. So. That's awesome. And again, that's acbaonline.com yes. for, right, the, for that yes. website for the American KV Breeders mm-hmm. Association. And, and that's an excellent website. It's very the comprehensive. ACBA online is all one word. Yes. And also, the ACBA Connection is our um, web, uh, Facebook page. Very cool. So, uh, telling our audience to join the ACBA, even if you're not in KVs, we're a member. Well, we do have KVs here, I will admit. Yeah, but, I, I highly, <laughs> highly encourage everybody as well as join the ACBA, is join the ARBA. Yes, absolutely. ARBA is our parent club. Uh, Without them, we would not have an ACBA. No, and that's the thing. ARBA does own our standard, does license our judges. There is no way the ACBA could do that on their own. So we are fortunate that the ARBA keeps us under their umbrella. Well, and I think you you mentioned earlier, but I think that – we are working, our two species are working closer and closer together. Oh, yeah. Uh, no more than ARBA has become much, much friendlier with the ACBA. It helped us in a lot, a lot of ways. So oh, we, yeah. We very much appreciate it. And, so that, oh, I'm sorry. No, go ahead, um, Margie. One thing I think that people should keep in mind, KB people and, and everyone, is that we are a specialty club of the ARBA. We are no better or worse than any other breed of animal because that's basically all we are. And I, I think people should appreciate the way the ARBA treats us. Now we have our own standards committee. I mean, 
these things in the early 70s would never ever have happened so like i said we were the always the last breed to be judged in the showroom they were cleaning up around us slamming tables and stuff <laughs> yeah. so we've seen it from the worst to the best yeah and right now we as far as i'm concerned we're at the best yeah we are mm-hmm. that's awesome and it's, yep. i'm sure it'll only get brighter uh as we continue to work together i yeah. agree for the same parent organization and really the same love. We both, we may speak different languages, but we, mm-hmm. we, both, right. we both speak this hobby. We, uh, we love yeah. hobbies. I yeah. still, to this day, after having done this for almost 50 years now, when we see a litter being born, it's like a thrill to us. Hmm. They're born completely furred. Their eyes are wide open. Within an hour of being born, they're running around the cage. And you can and it's tell if still it's, to this day is exciting. And that day you can tell if it's a bad roan or not. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that, that's a great way to, to finalize that. Give that last nod to the roan. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. right, absolutely. Mar- Margie and her roans. Yeah. All right, guys. Um, maybe uh, each of you could uh, give me the answer to this next question. It's something that we ask everyone, or maybe maybe you can share the 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 question because it's probably going to be very similar but describe your perfect kv show uh, hypothetically you know if, if it could be the perfect show what would it what would it be like for both of you i like having a large kv show with a lot of varieties being shown with a lot of animals in each variety being shown uh an example of it was at this special show we had over 80 black americans shown at this show that is, I have never in the 50 years I've been doing this or 45, whatever it is, seen a variety with that many animals shown in it. That is, to me is phenomenal. And it's it's very, very exciting to see something like that. Very cool. How about you, Margie? What would be your perfect KV show? My perfect KV show would be, I would say that my friends are there and everybody's having a good time and whoever wins, People are happy for that person, um, no matter what. Uh, that that would be my perfect show. And honestly, this specialty in Ohio was pretty close to being perfect. Yeah, close to being perfect. Other than the fact that air conditioning went out in their building and the food truck couldn't show up, and a few I mean, a million few other things. But um, every that's that to me. Seeing your friends that you don't get to see, we had. Friends out from California, Joe and Sarah Buchanan, that we don't get to see very often. And so that's that's what – and we went out to dinner, yep. laughed our butts off. <laughs> Boy, it's great. Yeah. yeah that's what makes it fun. Your, your friends is what makes it fun. Yeah. It doesn't sound much different than probably any rabbit story that you no. would hear. Uh, no, it, isn't. it really isn't. I think it's pretty much the same way up. It's a, com- it's a bunch of people getting together with a common interest. Yeah, that you can talk to each but other competitively about. too, yeah. which is right. fun, you know. And uh, and if you want if you want to talk with Margie, it sounds like we can find you at the ACBA merchandise booth at convention. Yeah, uh, at, 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 at specialty or convention always. I love it, and we, we usually see Steve behind the table judging, but it sounds like yeah. you, know, Ohio, nice. you, you well, have a rare I opportunity. Most, to... I was supposed to judge at this specialty show, but because the numbers were a little bit low when they expected. They asked if I mind stepping down because they had enough judges. I was perfectly happy to do it because there's times I really like being the one watching the judging and listening to the comments yeah. and stuff. So and it was it good was because they ran Americans and Satin Americans at the same time on two yeah. different tables. So it would have been a <laughs> nice. bit of a challenge. <laughs> 
Very cool. Well, uh, Steve and Margie, thank you very much for joining us on our Best in Show podcast, episode 15, talking about KVs and uh, where you guys have been over 50 years and uh, where you've seen the, 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 the association. And no, it's I'm, I'm, I'm with, with the utmost respect. I will be, trust me. Brian and I will be there one day too. We are we are we're lifers. We're bigger than you think. Yeah. Oh gosh. I, I have a good face cream for that and yeah. <laughs> a lot of retin LA. We both very much appreciate the fact that you're you're having KV people on this too. It makes it makes us very proud to, to represent the KV people. Mm-hmm. Well, I haven't been doing as long as you guys, but um, I have seen that shift and that appreciation from, from both sides and it's yeah. really it's really infectious and yeah. I um, we are a stronger group because we work together. And I'll tell you what, we are a stronger ARBA because uh, the two of you have devoted so many years to it. So thank you for everything that you've done oh, over the years you. to thank inspire and, and breed beautiful animals. Um, and congratulations again on your thank you. All right, thank guys. Um, enjoy your little summer break. Get those pigs bred. And we will yeah. see you in Louisville. Yes, Very we good. Will. We will. All right. Have a good night. Thank good you, night now. Thanks. Alan, that was a great interview. I admit, um, I don't know as much about KVs as I would like to, but it's always interesting to learn a little bit more. And of course, Steve and Margie are wonderful members of our ARBA family. I know every time I see them at rabbit shows, um, of course, with KVs too, they make a point of coming to see the rabbit judges and say hi and really involve themselves the entire show, not just stay in the KV corner, which which makes it fun and makes that world seem a little more inviting maybe to some of us rabbit-only people. So the piece um, for education that I chose tonight, or actually that you helped me find, is um, called... Um, Social System and Spatial Organization of Wild Guinea Pigs in a Natural Population. And a couple of our KV guests have talked about colony breeding of KVs. And so this kind of fits in with that. Um, I'll read just some little excerpts from this study. And it says, investigations on wild KVs under laboratory conditions point to a polygonous social and mating system in this species. Um, Now, to get on our our plural marriage um, terminology, polygony means one male and multiple females. Um, Polyandry means one female, multiple males. And polygamy is just a catch-all that means plural marriage, even though, you know, that's, you know, in shows like Sister Wives and whatnot, it's about polygamy. That's actually polygony. And so in the animal kingdom for a biological imperative, of course, polygony, which one male and multiple females, um, tends to be much more popular than other kinds of reproductive behavior. Um, says the existence of this polygony is supported by a strong sexual dimorphism with males being 11% heavier than females and a high incompatibility between males that makes it impossible to keep several adult males together in the presence of females. Uh, it says that mate choice tests reveal a strong social preference of females for individual males, which points to a single male system. So basically, uh, male KVs are not monogamous, but female KVs do have a preference for that. <laughs> so in this study, they looked at some wild KVs. They found a natural population and investigated them for a six-month period from September 1998 to March 1999 during their main reproductive season. Um, This was carried out on the extensive campus of the University of Sao Paulo in Brazil. And it's in an area which is very much a natural habitat for cavies. Um, It talks about a semi-humid tropic climate with a vegetation that cavies enjoy. There was trapping and marking of some of these cavies to facilitate the study. Some of them were monitored with little radio collars, I can imagine. Um, 
the population, it said that there was a relatively low population density. There were about 60 wild cavies observed in the study area, with uh, which was 4.8 hectares, resulting in a maximal population density of 12.5. said they were found living in sa- stable social groups consisting of one adult male and one to two adult females and their unweaned offspring. During our investigation, nine such groups were observed continuously, out of which 20 individuals were caught by live trapping. The sex ratio of the captured animals was balanced with 10 males, 7 adults, and 3 juveniles, and 10 females, 7 adults, and 3 juveniles. And sexual dimorphism, which means a very obvious difference between the sexes of a species, um, was was um, evident with respect to body weight among adults. Males were average, on average were heavier. Um, again, six of the nine observed single male groups confi- consisted of male-female pairs. The other groups were small harems consisting of one male and two females. And the home ranges of all of these animals were located along the banks of a lake where abundant ground vegetation existed. Um, unless the habitat was destroyed or group members were killed, their home ranges be- remained very stable over the months that they were observed. And it said the group structure, in contrast to the observations of Rude in 1972, um, who described large mixed-sex groups of wild cavies in our study social organization, um, was characterized by small single male groups. The observed single male groups were spatio-temporally stable social units that occupied small home ranges with extensive home range overlap within groups, but almost no overlap between neighboring groups. However, males were not observed to mark or defend the borders of their home ranges against other males. Instead, they regularly marked their females with anal glands and chased intruding males when they approached one of the females in their group. Thus, territoriality did not occur, and female defense polygony rather than resource defense polygony appeared to exist. So, scientific proof that colony mating of cavies is very much um, in accordance with their natural behavior, and that male cavies, eh, they don't care about their territory so much, but don't touch their girls. I wonder if that's why they poop in their dish so much. (laughs) No. I don't don't know. I wish there was a, an electric collar to keep them from doing that because <laughs> nothing has more. I've already said it on the podcast and it has more intention about pooping in its food dish than a KV. But with all, all due respect, gosh, don't you wish you could raise rabbits in a colony? It'd be so much easier. It would be kind of nice, but I raise Dutch and that just doesn't work. <laughs> Male Dutch do not stop. <laughs> and female Blue. Dutch will don't really care. They don't really stop either. Like test mating does not work with Dutch. They are fertile mortals and a blue Dutch buck. I've never been peed on more while judging than by a blue Dutch buck. So <laughs> they definitely mark their territory. That was very interesting and and really indicative of what goes on uh, by ACBA members uh, showing in breeding cavies today. And they've done this for a long time. They've raised them in colonies. And it's, it's fascinating to think that. And that's actually quite successful. And that's a lot of the people that are at the very top have one boar and a few sows and, and a pen and, and let it go. Yeah, pretty cool. And it, it's very everybody seems to get along. It's very natural behavior for them. <laughs> yes, it is. All right, so I think that leads us to our conclusion tonight. Um, I want to remind everyone that uh, uh, the Rabbitry on Facebook serves as our podcast Best in Show hub, and every week we do an update, of course, with the current length to the Best in Show episode. But also on there are links to the past episodes. So forever and ever, these podcasts will exist, and you can geek out and listen whether you're headed to a rabbit show or cleaning your barn endlessly, uh, you know, open those links on the rabbit tree on Facebook and uh, they're all there for you uh, wherever your platform may be, whether it's Apple podcast or 
um, Audible or even on Spotify. And uh, we read some comments earlier tonight in our podcast that came from our listeners, and we'd love to read yours too. You can email both Brian and I at podcastbestinshow at gmail.com. That's spelled out just as it said, podcastbestinshow at gmail.com. Shoot us your comments, whether they're positive or maybe you've got some criticisms. Uh, we'd love to hear them. Or maybe you've even got some historical facts that that we might totally geek out on and, and want to share on one of our future podcasts. So please send us your email. And by the way, if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Audible, give us a five-star rating, whatever that means in that platform. We would really appreciate your positive feedback, uh, whether it's just giving us a star or stars and adding a comment. That means the world to us and um, and everyone that, that, else, that, that listens to us and says, hey, what's this podcast all about? Uh, those comments really mean, mean the world of uh, difference to us. So please do that for us. Brian, do you have any uh, concluding words as we uh, approach the end of our podcast? Well, I would like to uh, remind everyone that we did issue the challenge about the Distinguished Service Award. So if you've not yet, um, start thinking about someone who deserves to be nominated. Go to the ARBA website under Printable Forms. You will find um, a link for Printable Award Forms. And just take a look at the requirements and, and start thinking. Also, your member handbook should be in your mailbox by now. I know mine was there on Monday. And this will give you a list of past winners in case you're wondering who has already received this award. And we are holding you guys to this because we're going to start reading some of those DSA, those Distinguished Service Award recipients. And um, if they came by by way of our audience, you guys, we're going to give you a nod because uh, there's so many people that do so much for our industry and our hobby and our ARBA uh, as volunteers, selfless volunteers. And it's time to highlight them. And there's no time better than now. So awesome. Love that challenge. Um, as we conclude every week, we are going to conclude with a quote, and I've got one tonight from Malcolm Gladwell. And it kind of reverts back to that, that Roan, that underdog, that, that variety that doesn't usually beat the black or white American. And it goes something like this. The fact of being an underdog changes people in ways that we often fail to appreciate. It opens doors and creates opportunities and enlightens and permits things that might otherwise have seemed unthinkable. So with that, Bryony, what do we say every time? Talk rabbits and talk capies. We will see you next week. While this podcast would not be possible without the American Rabbit Breeders Association, it does not constitute an official communication of the association. The information, viewpoints, and opinions expressed herein are those of the hosts and our guests and are not endorsed by the ARBA. To learn more about the ARBA, please visit www.arba.net.